You're listening to First Things First, Haggai's message for God's people today. A verse-by-verse study of the prophecy of Haggai. For more Bible-saturated content, visit our website at RedeemerMedford.org. That's RedeemerMedford.org. For now, we turn our attention to the Word of God. We are in the middle of a sermon series. Well, I say the middle. We started it last week. We are in Haggai chapter 2 this morning as we work our way verse by verse through this Old Testament prophecy. We've entitled this series, First Things First, Haggai's Message to God's People Today. And this morning, as I said, we're turning our thoughts to chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 9. Chapter 2 and verses 1 through 9, I've titled this message this morning, Laying Hold of God's Promises and Power. Laying Hold of God's Promises and Power. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. If you're there, could you let me know by saying amen? If you're not, if you need a minute, let me know. Um, Okay, sounds like everyone's there. If you... If you're able to do so, would you stand with me once again as we read this portion of God's Word? We stand for the reading of God's Word here at Redeemer out of reverence for it and because we see that example given to us in Scripture. So, Haggai chapter 2, and as you know, as our custom, we, I'm going to invite you rather to read with me. Haggai chapter 2. I will read the odd-numbered verses. I will invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 9. Once again, brothers and sisters, these are God's words. On the 27th day of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came through the prophet Haggai. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of armies. I'll read the last few verses. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of Yahweh of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says Yahweh of armies. I will provide peace in this place. Amazing things out of your law. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened as you help us to understand the hope you've called us to. What are the riches of your inheritance in us? 
as your people and the power that is beyond measure, yet freely available to us through our union with Christ. It's our custom always to pray for other area churches, and this morning we take a moment to pray for our brethren at Trinity Church. We pray for Pastor Brian and the session, the leadership team there, that they would know your blessing as they serve the body of people there who call on your name. Be with us now as we worship, as we sit at your feet and hear your sweet and gracious word. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, my text is chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and my title this morning is Laying Hold of God's Power and Promises. Some messages I preach, actually every message I preach, um, I 110% believe, don't doubt, what God's Word has to say, I'm passionate about. But there's always a degree, just being transparent with you, there's always a degree to which sometimes you feel a measure of detachment, as it were. You feel a measure of, well, this is true, but it's not 110% speaking directly to me. They testify to divine truth, but... And I am passionate about them, but there's a degree to which you feel, okay, this is, I'm passionate about this because it's God's word, not so much because it 110% speaks to me. Other messages I preach, and even as I prepare them, they speak to me at the point of my own need. Today's message is one of the latter. I'm going to be 110% transparent with you all. Beloved, this week has taken a toll on me like few weeks have. And I can honestly say that more than ever when I've read a text, especially one where there are, you know, there's a particular audience that I'm aware of, more than ever I have felt very much like I imagine the folks in Haggai chapter 2 feel as we come to this second prophecy in the book. Now, by way of review, Haggai has four prophecies. You remember this from our introduction last week. Each of them are time-dated. That's how you kind of know you're starting another prophecy in the book because you see a time marker that tells you, okay, he's about to speak. You remember that I said last week that there's a melodic line that runs through this book, an overarching theme that regardless of where you are in Haggai, you can connect to and make it make sense. The melodic line that I gave was something like this. It should be up on screen for you there. God's priorities put first lead to God's pleasure and blessing both now and for eternity. God's priorities put first lead to God's pleasure and blessing both now and for eternity. As you read the book, the emphasis of this book is essentially for God's people to get their hearts right with him because as their hearts are right with him as he takes that place that he so rightly deserves as Lord of all and as redeemer of his people as they put him first that would lead to God's pleasure and blessing on the people both now and for eternity. Last week, we took the entirety of the first chapter as our study. 
and we saw God rebuking his people for their apathy. And in particular, it's apathy towards him and apathy towards his work at this point, centralized in the building of the temple. And I don't know about you, but if you didn't know this, I actually go back and listen to my own sermons. Um, it's kind of like watching tape if you're a sports person. And so as I sat down, even I thought, ouch, um, that stung and I'm the one who preached it. It was pointed and difficult because Haggai 1 is pointed and difficult in what it says. But you remember that towards the end of the chapter, it works. So 12 through 15, the people kind of rouse themselves and they do the work and the Spirit of God empowers them and God says that He is with them. And so you look at chapter 1 and verse 15, it says the people got to work. Do you see the time marker there again? On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. In our modern calendar, it would translate to September the 21st, 520 BC. So about three or so weeks after the first prophecy is given. God's word has, as we spoke about last week, created new life in his people. And so they get to work building this house. Now, to give you something of a timeline, Haggai is written about the same time as the early chapters of the book of Ezra. And Ezra chapter 3, in fact, you might want to turn there for just a moment, Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3 fills in some of the details that Haggai doesn't give us. So Ezra chapter 3 and verses 10 through 13. Ezra chapter 3 and verses 10 through 13. It says, When the builders had laid the foundations of Yahweh's temple, the priests, dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, took their positions to praise Yahweh as King David had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to Yahweh, for he is good. His faithful love to Israel, his covenantal love to Israel, endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout to Yahweh because of the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. You get the picture that as they put the foundation and people look at this and what you would expect there to be a happiness and yes, the priests are there and they're you know, leading the people in worship and the younger generation is excited. The younger generation are praising the Lord, but the older generation seem to be a little despondent. Add to that that Ezra 4, 5, and 6 tells us that there was external opposition that the people faced. And you get the picture of people to, who wanted to do God's work, and yet they faced the pressure that discouragement brings. Chapter 1, the problem was apathy. And God's word faithfully dealt with that. 
But now something else had taken its place. Apathy was no longer the problem. Despondency was the problem. Disappointment was the problem. Discouragement was the problem. Brothers and sisters, when those moments come in our own lives, when discouragement and despondency, as it were, covers the sky above us like a dark cloud threatening to break open over us, what's the answer? What do we do when those moments come? What do we think God will do in moments like that? God doesn't do what he did in chapter 1. You remember in chapter 1, uh, as it were, God needed to take out the paddles and shock them a little bit. God needed, as it were, to give them a jump start to the spiritual battery. They needed the divine drill sergeant, as it were, to whip them into shape. But that's not what God does here in chapter 2. Did you catch that as you read it? If in chapter 1 we could say God got in their faces, as it were, and kind of spared no quarters, that's not what he does here. God doesn't so much get in their face, as it were, as he comes alongside them and encourages them. And I think there are immense lessons that we can learn from how God encourages his people in this text. Because I think I said this last week, and I want to say it more plainly this week. Haggai is about much more than just the building project. If you read this and think, oh, it's about these people building the temple, and that's all it is, you kind of miss the point of Haggai. Yes, it's about the need to rebuild the temple, but it's about much more than just that. Haggai really is a book that talks to us about the spiritual life as a whole. Haggai is a book that reminds us that in every age we face the temptation to lose the things that ought to be priority. We, as I think I said last week, like the church in Revelation, we're tempted to lose our first love. And as it were, the Lord has to remind us to repent and do the first works. Go back to what you first did. Well, at times, it's apathy, but as I said, today, discouragement's the issue. And again, we, we can be tempted to think, well, I'm not building a temple, so it doesn't really matter for me what happened to these people. But actually, it matters a ton. Because, you, again, I'm kind of repeating a lot of what I said last week. When you trace this theme of temple through the Bible, it means much more than just a physical place. Real quick, in John chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Jesus will tie himself into this theme of temple when he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And John gives us a very helpful editorial comment. He says he wasn't speaking about the temple, he was speaking about his own body. And of course, that makes sense. The temple was where the presence of God resided. And well, in the person of Jesus, the presence of God didn't just reside in Jesus. He was the very presence of God. Well, fast forward later in your Bible, the church is referred to as God's temple. So in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And it goes on and says that in him we are being built up, spiritual stones, into a temple for God by his spirit. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3 picks up this language as well and says that we are the temple of God and anybody who messes with God's temple, him God will destroy. The individual believer is called God's temple in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. That's why Paul says you shouldn't be engaging in sexual sin. That's his point there in chapter 6. Don't engage in sexual sin. Why? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple of God, excuse me. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And finally, when we get to the new creation in Revelation chapter 21, you'll pay attention to the fact that there's explicitly said twice that there is no temple in this place. Why? Because God has made his dwelling. Funny, the word for dwelling there is the word tabernacle, which was the proto-temple, if you will. (laughs) That God has made his tabernacle with men. And so there is no longer a need for a temple. So when we read about the temple in Haggai, don't confine it to just this building in Jerusalem after the exile. Yes, it's primarily that. This is not an allegory. Let's not treat it that way. But the lessons that we learn about the need to rebuild that temple, we can apply to our own spiritual lives and to our lives as God's people. And so Haggai has much to teach us about the nature of our relationship with God, especially in hard times. Again, think of this as a spiritual checkup, helping us to see if things are where they need to be. Haggai's four prophecies, if you take them as a whole, they present to us a journey back to vitality in the Lord, a journey back to our first love, as it were. And each stop on this spiritual journey matters. Beloved, here's my big idea for today. Here's my big idea for today. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Here's the heart of what's happening in our text today. As we put God's priorities first, he encourages us in hard times through his promises and his power. As we put God's priorities first, he encourages us in hard times through his promises and his power. To flesh out that theme this morning, would you consider three movements in our text this morning with me? Three movements that show God encouraging his people through a hard time with his promises and power. If you're going to be encouraged by God's promises and his power, if you're going to be encouraged by what God is doing, even when it seems like God is not doing anything, can can I give you three movements out of this text this morning? First of all, you need to acknowledge the reason that you need God's provision. You need to acknowledge the reason you need God's provision, verses 1 through 3. As we come to prophecy number 2 in the book of Haggai, Haggai, like I said, gives us one of those trademark date markers of his. So chapter 2, verse 1, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came through the prophet Haggai. Okay, another date. In fact, that would be October 17th, 520. So another three weeks has passed now, or thereabouts. But that day is significant. It may not be significant on first reading, but for somebody who's reading this prophecy, who knows their calendar of the day, they know exactly what's important about this day. The 21st day of the seventh month would be the last full day of one of Israel's three required feasts. It was the last full day of what was known as the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot, which is simply tents or tabernacles. It's also known in the Bible as the festival or the feast of booths. 
Israel's calendar had three times in a year that they were required to appear before the Lord, and this is one of them. The feast was a commemoration of the people's time in the wilderness, and so they would leave their homes and they would put up these very simple structures and they would live in them. And God required that on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles and really the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, day eight, no work was to be done on those days. This is day eight, <laughs> which means everybody has gathered together. The nation as a whole has come to Jerusalem. It's the perfect time to deliver a message that everyone needs to hear. It would be akin to everyone gathering over, at, uh, if I remember correctly, every year, July 4th around here over at the fairgrounds. They do fireworks and stuff. It would be akin to everyone gathering there and then someone taking the opportunity to give a message. It's the perfect time. You've got thousands of people there. And as you come to this second prophecy, the last prophecy, if you remember, was focused on, or it was directed to, I should say, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, who is of the royal line. He's the governor in your ruling in the stead of the Persian Empire at that point. And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who is the high priest. Well, this prophecy is addressed to them, but did you catch in verse 2 that there's another group that's mentioned? So he says, speak to Zerubbabel, speak to Joshua, but he also says, and to the remnant of the people. Civil leaders, spiritual leadership, lay people. All of you need to hear this word. It's comprehensive in its scope. Nobody's left out. And so as God begins to speak, God begins with three questions. Did you see those there in verse 3? Number one, who, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? This question, coupled with what we just read in Ezra chapter 3, suggests that there were some in the audience who were old enough to remember 66 years at least when Solomon's temple stood tall in all its glory. In fact, the text seems to suggest that Haggai is in this category, that he's an older man. God goes on and he asks two more questions. He says, how does it look to you now? How does this temple look to you now in comparison to that? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you by comparison? Those two questions are intended to be ironic and rhetorical. Of course, this temple didn't look anything like Solomon's. If you read the account in the early chapters of First Kings, it's a pretty impressive structure. He gets the best. Like he goes above and beyond what God asked for in the tabernacle in a good way. It's a lavish structure. He gets the best materials. He trades land for the best wood and for the best metal. There's gold and bronze and all kinds of beautiful things in place. It's an august affair. This, not so much. <laughs> I mean, isn't it a quirk of human nature? Just, isn't it just like us to compare situations? I mean, sometimes there's a good reason for doing that. But a lot of the time, isn't it true? Isn't the saying true that comparison is the thief of joy? Isn't it true that we can be so tempted to say, oh, I remember the good old days? Isn't it often the case that we are so tempted to that that we lose sight of the fact that that was then, 
But in God's providence, this is now. One writer put it like this. To use comparison with others as a measure for self-worth and confidence is to use a, self, a false standard. Excuse me. It puts us at the mercy of the external situation and the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Our sufficiency must be Christ alone. And our relationship with him should be the sole determinants for our feelings of self-worth and confidence. Beloved, confidence will have you falling apart at the seams, wondering what on earth you're doing because you'll sit there and look at it and say, I don't understand what's happening right now. Like, this is not like that time when, this is not like way back when. Comparison is dangerous and thankfully God diagnoses the problem. And like I said, he takes a very different approach than he did in chapter one. Because you see, apathy, which was the problem in chapter one, that's inexcusable and inappropriate. But God knows. Remember what the Bible says? He knows our, Psalm 103, verse 14. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. <laughs> Job said it, one of my favorite verses. It's kind of weird that's one of my favorite verses, but it is. Man is born to trouble like sparks fly upward. <laughs> Discouragement is inevitable. But praise the Lord, though it's inevitable in this life, it's not incurable. It's not incurable if you own up to it. <laughs> the, f the first step of to laying hold of God's promises and power in times of discouragement is to acknowledge our need for God's provision. You can't receive help if you're not realistic about your need for it. And here's the thing, that, that can, especially in this day and age where we go, we are bombarded with messaging we are bombarded with the idea that the last thing you want to do is to admit you need help which is ironic because then people more than ever are flocking to see therapists and flocking to see doctors because they recognize they need help we just don't talk about the fact that we need help but here's the thing for the christian the christian can more than happily own the fact that we are discouraged and we need help. Why? Because we know that our gracious God doesn't scold us for being discouraged. He's not the frustrated father expecting perfection and a stoic, you know, I come from the UK, you know, a stiff upper lip. Like, he's not expecting that from us. Like I said, God doesn't get in their faces about their discouragement. He comes alongside them in their discouragement. And from here, things start looking up. You need to acknowledge the reason you need God's provision. But secondly, this morning, you need to accept the reality of God's promise. You need to accept the reality of God's promise, verses 4 and 5. God meets his people right at the point of their need. He points out the fact that they're discouraged. Do you kind of get the sense that God is even understanding about that? He doesn't seem to be like, oh, seriously, why are you bothered by this? Like, no, he seems to understand. Well, he doesn't seem to understand. The Bible tells me that he does understand. And so verse 4 begins with the words, even so. Yes, they were discouraged. Yes, they were despondent. 
But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. He says, even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is Yahweh's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is Yahweh's declaration. Throughout the Bible, God calls his people to be strong in light of the fact that he is with his people. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read just a few verses. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 23. Text says, The Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land. I swore to them, and I will be with you. This is before Moses' death. Well, after Moses' death, Joshua seems to be discouraged again. So God reminds him, Joshua 1.9, Haven't I commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Text tells us, Above all, may the Lord give you insight and understanding when he puts you in charge of Israel, so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will succeed if you carefully follow the statutes and ordinances the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. God repeats this thing in the Bible over and over and over again because he knows that our tendency is to not be strong and not be courageous when we're troubled. Coming back to Haggai, the command to be strong here is interesting. Haggai kind of breaks all the rules of grammar in this one prophecy constantly. This is one of those times. The command to be strong is in the singular, even though he's speaking to a group of people. Well, three in this particular instance. Though groups are spoken to, each individual member of the nation had their role to play in putting on strength and laboring for the Lord. This was an individual decision that they had to come to. It wasn't just... Okay, the majority of you in the group, if you're okay, you can carry everyone else. No, each person needed to determine within themselves that they were going to put on strength in this moment. One writer puts it like this. The people needed a word of encouragement, and this message was aimed at bringing stability to them as well as tranquility. This could only be achieved if God was given his rightful place in their hearts and in the completing of the temple. They needed to be strong and courageous in carrying out the Lord's work. Thus, to the discouraged and the despondent comes the threefold exhortation, yet now be strong. The repetition of the exhortation, be strong, emphasizes the need for strength in the work of rebuilding. They were not to look to the past, but be courageous in the present work of building Jehovah's house. The idea here is for them to work on bravely and finish the work they have begun. It is often easy to begin a work, but it is more difficult to continue in that work. End quote. Well, not only does God encourage them on the level of their internal discouragement, he encourages them to labor on. That's why you have that simple one-word command, at least in my translation, work. Some translations have it literally begin the work or begin to work. The temptation was, they've started building, this doesn't look so impressive, and so it's like, uh, this looks really hard. I, I don't know if I can continue with this. And God says, no, 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 no. Pick it back up. 
Get back to it. Don't say, oh, this is so difficult. This is so hard. I need to run for this. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Pick it back up. Get back to it. And again, I told you, Haggai kind of plays with grammar a little bit. He switches from the singular back to the plural in the original. Once your hearts are back where they need to be, all of you need to get together and get to work. Another writer puts it like this, leaders and people must not be discouraged, but must join hands and forces in diligently promoting the significant task of rebuilding the Lord's temple. The responsibility of each leader and of the people individually and jointly is emphasized by the repetition of the command to be strong in the singular with the exhortation to act in the plural. Well, why is it that they could do this? Why could they be encouraged to work? Why could they be encouraged or should they have been encouraged to work and to act? Well, God says, do you see it there? For I am with you. Just as in chapter one, you remember in chapter one, God said the same thing once the people started working. He said, I'm with you. But just as in chapter one, God reminds his people of his presence. But here's what's interesting when you come to Haggai. When you come to the prophecy of Haggai, there's an additional component. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, this is the promise I made with you, I made to you, excuse me, when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. Exodus chapter 33, you might want to turn there actually and see this in your own Bible. Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 32, you have the account of the golden calf, that rather sordid moment in Israel's history. Well, that account has happened. And you can imagine that Moses is rightly concerned that, okay, we we might be in for a long haul with this. Moses goes before the Lord in the aftermath, not aftercalf, the aftermath of the whole golden calf affair. And it, I'll summarize. He essentially says, Lord, I can't deal with these people. Lord, you and I both know. They're kind of wild. Like, I, I, I can't deal with these people unless you go with me. Jump down to verse 13, Exodus 33 and 13. Moses says, now if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. Here's God's response, verse 14. He replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Why does God mention this account of his people when they come out of Egypt? Well, there's a parallel you're supposed to pick up. Let me see if I can spell it out for you. A people on the precipice of a monumental task after being judged for their sin. That was Egypt. Or the generation in the Exodus after Egypt, I should say. Haggai writes to a people on the precipice of a monumental task after being judged for their sin in the exile. (laughs) He basically says, listen, this isn't the first time you've been in this situation. This isn't the first time you've been here. But here's the thing. God was with your fathers in the wilderness. He was with them there. And God's encouragement here is, I'm still with you. (laughs) Just like 
your fathers, even after they sinned with the golden coffins, and I still said, my presence will go before you and you will have rest. Well, you're in the same place. You're back in the land, and you're now faced with this task of building the temple after you've been judged for your sin in exile. But my spirit is still with you, and so you should be encouraged. Beloved, discouragement in the face of spiritual things is real. I have no time, none, for the sort of Pollyanna-ish Christianity that exists, particularly in the West, where we kind of tell people, come to Jesus, your life will be great, you'll never have problems, he'll solve every issue, you'll never be sad, you'll never have moments where you feel like giving up, it's just great all the time, how are you? I'm blessed and highly favored, like, no, I don't have any time for that, because that's not real, <laughs> like, can we be honest and say that discouragement in the face of spiritual things is real? And what we kind of learn from this Haggai prophecy is that we're not to hide from it. We're not to kind of say, you know, I'm going to just put, you know, put all your, what's the song? Put all your problems in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. That, that, is, that may make for great music, but that's not biblical Christianity. <laughs> it's bad theology, I agree. <laughs> no, we shouldn't hide from it. But as God's people, we have to remember that we have the abiding promise of God's presence. Well, okay, Kofi, that's great for them. That's not true for us, though, is it? Oh, I seem to remember Jesus saying in his marching orders to the church, Matthew 28 and 20, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beloved, when we're tempted to throw in the towel, when we're tempted to say this is too hard and just walk away from what we know God is calling us to, when it all gets too much to handle and it seems just far too real, can I put it to you that we need to remember that God's promise is more real than our discouragement? That's why the authors of the Hebrews, I love Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, after telling them to keep themselves free from the love of money and telling them to be satisfied with um, what they have, he says, you can do that. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so we need constantly, not just to acknowledge our need for God's provision, but we need to accept the reality of his power. He says, listen, of his presence, excuse me, accept the reality of his presence. I am with you even in this moment of discouragement. But can I give you a third, a third movement in this text that I think will help us in dealing with moments of discouragement? Acknowledge your need for God's provision. Accept the reality of God's presence. Thirdly, await the resolve of God's power. Verses six through nine. Await the resolve of God's power. In light of God's promise to be with his people and to bless his people, God speaks one more word. He's not quite done yet. He's got one more thing to say, something that is designed to put their present predicament into perspective. Something that's designed to help them to look past where they are right now and look to what God is doing. Here's the thing that he wants them to remember. He wants his people to remember that he has resolved to show his power. In particular, in two ways, he wants to show his power. First of all, God wants to show his power to judge his enemies, verses 6 and 7. You see, God's power to judge his enemies, verses 6 and 7. Well, the first part of verse 7. 
So verse 6, the sovereign God, the Lord of Israel's armies, when you see that language of the Yahweh of armies or Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, it's talking about the sovereign one, the almighty one, the one who is the commander of heaven's armies. He's going to rouse himself and judge his enemies. First of all, it will be imminent. He says, once more, in a little while. It's not immediate. He's not saying, well, tomorrow I'm going to do this. No, it's not immediate, but it is imminent. It's on its way. And not only will this judgment be imminent, it's going to be cataclysmic. He says, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. The language of shaking heaven and earth is meant to be another link to the Exodus generation. You don't need to turn there, but Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18, if you're taking notes. Psalm 68 and verse 8 both speak to the language of the mountain of Sinai trembling when God came down and giving the law. And in fact, anybody who touched the mountain in that moment was said to die. And God wants his people to remember that just like the day that God came down and shook heaven and earth as the lawgiver, one day is coming when he will come down again. And this time he will be coming in judgment of his enemies. The only portion from Haggai that's quoted in the New Testament appears here. The author of the Hebrews in chapter 12 picks up verse 6. And he heightens it. He kind of takes it to a whole other level. And his point there is that whatever seems so permanent, whatever seems so insurmountable, whatever seems so formidable now won't be forever. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 and 29, he says, His voice shook the earth at that time when God came down on Sinai. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This the author of Hebrews goes on, verse 27. This expression, yet now, yet once more, excuse me, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, may I pause for a moment and say, nowhere in the Bible does it say we build the kingdom, it says we receive the kingdom. That's a whole other sermon for another time. But notice the language here. He says, since we are receiving a kingdom, that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews picks up the language of Haggai 2.6, and he says, listen, don't be swayed by these things that are calling you to leave the living God and go back to where you came from. That's all going to be shaken up, and it won't remain. Stay fixed on the reality of God's kingdom that is coming. That will remain permanently. Not only will this judgment, this shaking be imminent and cataclysmic. Do you know that it's comprehensive? Verse 7, he says, I will shake all the nations. Now, in the immediate context, it's referring to the fact that God would judge the nations who had taken his people captive. And that actually happened in history. About 40 years from this point, those of you who know your ancient history, the Greek advance would kind of start to defeat the Persians. Finally, Alexander the Great would finish them off. If you know anything about history, the Battle of Marathon, he would finally defeat the Persian Empire. He wouldn't live long enough to enjoy it. He would die. His kingdom kind of breaks up. 
and in the weakness of these broken up kingdoms, Rome emerges and the rest, as they say, is truly history. But there is also a more future, more distant fulfillment of this, which is what the author to the Hebrews picks up. That at the end of days, there will be a final shaking of the nations when Christ comes back for his church and he unleashes a torrent of judgment on an unbelieving world. But hold on, why is Haggai kind of moving from the here and now to all the way to the end? Can, can I tell you that I find that really encouraging? Would you mind if I share why I find that encouraging? <laughs> Sometimes the encouragement we need is that things will be all right. That, you know, things will just work themselves out in this life. It will be fine. Things will just work out. But what do we do when things don't work themselves out? What about when the, the illness isn't healed? What about when the rumors don't get quashed? What about when the relationship isn't repaired? You see, things, things might not work out, but even if they don't in this life, we have the confidence. We have the confidence that one day we'll be in a place where there is no more pain, where the hurt will be over, where, in the tradition I grew up, we used to say, where we'll get the victory. Things might not get better now, but we have the hope of God's kingdom. We know that a day is coming that all the frustration and the disappointment we feel in the here and now will actually be made right. And in fact, I got to pick up that point. Not only does he talk about God's power to judge his enemies, second half of verse 7 through to verse 9, he talks about his power to bless his people. He talks about his power to bless his people. You see, God's judgment is not the act of some vicious celestial thug taking out his uncontrolled anger on out on folks who can't fight back. No, it's purposeful. It's purposeful. So verse 7 says that he would shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations, all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of armies. Now, without doubt, this section we're about to look at is the toughest section in Haggai to interpret. It's actually pretty easy from here on out. This is actually the hardest section in Haggai to deal with. And the difficulty is, what does it mean when he says that the treasure of all the nations will come? This is kind of technical, but try and follow me as best you can. The crux of the issue is, well, how do you translate this word that the Christian Standard Bible, which is what I preach from, it translates as treasures. How do you translate that? Is this a reference to actual treasure? Or is it a reference to a person? The challenge is, this word that's used here is used in the Old Testament for both. So in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 20, Samuel is talking about Israel's first king, Saul, the son of Kish. He says, as for the donkeys that wandered away from you three days ago, don't worry about them because they've been found. And what does all Israel desire, that's the word here, or consider to be precious, but you and all your father's family? In other words, who else do the people want to be king but you? I saw this morning that my pastor back in London is in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 27 kind of smiled because Daniel 9.23 is one of the verses I wanted to look at. 
Gabriel is speaking to Daniel. He's bringing the, what we know as the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And he says, at the beginning of your petition, an answer went out and I've come to give it for you are treasured, same word, by God. So this word is used of people, but it's also used of possessions. So Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32 is said to have every desirable item. Same word. Chapter 36, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys Jerusalem, he takes all the valuable articles of Yahweh's temple. Same word. So you put that together and, okay, this is kind of confusing. Is it talking about a person here? Some older translations like the King James Version will use language, the, the desire of all nations. And some have taken that to be, oh, that's a reference to Christ. Is that what's happening here? Well, on one side, a really great study tool that if you don't own one, I would recommend for your personal Bible study library. The ESV Study Bible, in their note, puts this. The focus of Haggai's oracle in its, immediate com in its context is specifically on the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. In addition, from a New Testament vantage point, many would see a foreshadowing of events unfolding in the incarnation of Christ and ultimately in his second coming at the end of the age. For example, when Jesus spoke of his body at this, as this temple and when Revelation speaks of the day that the whole city of Jerusalem will be filled with the presence of God for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty. So they kind of say, mm, you can go both ways. But, okay, we've gone down the rabbit hole just a little bit. What's the answer? Well, how do we handle this passage? This may be disappointing for some of you, but as far as I've been able to detect this week as I've studied, believe you me, I took more hours than I would have liked trying to figure this out. I think Haggai, as far as I can tell, is being deliberately ambiguous. I think you're supposed to read this and wonder, what's going on here. I mean, you guys have been great. I'm, I'm almost at my point. Haggai is, like most of the biblical prophets, he's talking both near and far. There's a very close fulfillment of this, and there's a very far future fulfillment of this. So, did the nations bring their treasures into this temple? They did. In fact, you want to see this. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6 and verses 8 through 10. Ezra chapter 6 and verses 8 through 10. Covers a time period not too long after what we've just read here. Ezra chapter 6 verses 8 through 10. It says, I hereby issue a decree concerning what you ought to do. This is the king speaking. So that the elders of the Jews can rebuild the house of God. The cost is to be paid in full to these men out of the royal revenues from the taxes of the region west of the Euphrates River so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, and young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of the heavens, or wheat, salt, wine, and oil as requested by the priests of Jerusalem, let it be given to them every day without fail, so that they can offer sacrifices of pleasing aroma to the God of the heavens and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So, yes, in the immediate term, the nations did actually give up their treasures to help the house of the Lord be built. 
But I also think there's a sense in which this is speaking about an individual. That it's speaking about a person. How do I know I get that from verse 9? Verse 9, do you see it there? For the final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says Yahweh of armies. Again, the generation is supposed to remember this. They're supposed to cast their mind back to Solomon's temple. We don't have time to read it, but 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon's temple is built, Solomon prays this amazing prayer of dedication. And at the end of this prayer of dedication, it says that the cloud that symbolized the glory and the presence of God filled the temple. And it was so dense and thick that the people couldn't even worship that day. That's a glorious event, we would agree, right? But God says, listen, as glorious as that was, the final glory of this house will be greater than even that. I would argue that that did indeed happen. Because this would be the temple, with some renovation work done by King Herod in the future, this would be the temple that Jesus himself would walk into. That God in flesh would enter into this temple. He would teach in this temple. In fact, Malachi 3.1 says that the messenger of the covenant, the one in whom you delight, he would come suddenly to this temple. In Solomon's day, a symbol of God's glory and presence came into this temple. But, came into Solomon's temple, excuse me. But, God's actual glory and presence would be there in the person of his son. And so I don't think it's an either or. It's a both and. Ultimately, through this temple and through the one who would come to this temple, God says, end of verse 9, I will provide peace in this place where strife and difficulty would be the controlling feature of the day god's promise is that through this place peace would come that god's promise and power would ultimately transcend their present predicament and the good news is that for us who know the lord jesus God's power and promise transcend any circumstance we find ourselves in. I know that because 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells me that in him, every one of God's promises is yes, and therefore through him we also say amen to the glory of God. All of God's promises find their yes and their amen in him. Christ is the one ultimately in whom we find our peace when the storms of life rage. He is the treasure we seek even in this life when it seems like peace is gone never to return. When we seek encouragement ultimately, we find it in him. If you're here this morning or you're listening to this and you haven't come to know this one who brings peace, may I invite you to come to know him. The eternal God took on flesh, entered into our world, lived the life that we were unable to live, and died the death that we deserved to die. And through the righteousness that he accrued, through his one life of obedience, he is able to save to the uttermost anyone who calls up to God through him. And guess what? If you're here and you're a believer, he's still doing that. He's still encouraging and lifting us out of the mire of despair and lifting us out of the maelstrom of disappointment and discouragement. 
we can ultimately lay hold of God's promises and power because of his son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we have such great and precious promises given to us through the knowledge of your Son and our Savior. Help us to lay hold of those. Help us to remember that when we are discouraged, that we have one that we can turn to who sympathizes with our need and is ever willing and ever ready to help us. Be with us now as we come before the Lord's table. May this be a time of joy and rejoicing as we not only remember what you have done for us, but we also partake by faith in the benefits of that work. Asking Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Well, we come to the Lord's table this morning and